This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm April Glazer. And I'm Will Oremus. Hey, everyone. Welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, October 16th. On today's show, we'll talk about the continuing saga that is Facebook's effort to fix itself, ideally without breaking everything else in the process. On Friday, Facebook finally told us more about the huge hack that it first announced last month. The good news there is that fewer users may have been affected than originally thought, The bad news is that there were still almost 30 million people affected, and the hackers got a lot of their personal information. We'll talk about what was stolen and why it matters. We'll also say a few words about Paul Allen, the co-founder of Microsoft, who died this week at age 65. Then we'll be joined by Senator Mark Warner from Virginia. Warner is the top Democrat on the Senate Intelligence Committee that is conducting its investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election. This summer, he released a policy paper that proposed possible regulations for U.S. social media and technology companies. We'll talk to him about what worries him most about the largely unregulated tech industry, one that can't seem to keep our data private and stop muddying our elections. We'll ask him what he thinks Congress can do to rein these companies in. And as always, we'll end with Don't Close My Tabs, some of the best things we saw on the web this week. All right, April, how are you doing this week? I'm good. I'm really excited about our upcoming interview. It's the first time we've had a U.S. senator on the show, and especially one that's just so central to our beat, Mark Warner. So very excited about that and and have been prepping for that for a few days. How are you doing, Will? I'm doing well, thanks. I'm recording on a chilly fall day in Wilmington, Delaware. Why don't we start with Paul Allen, shall we? Yes, the co-founder of Microsoft, who we learned passed this week at age 65. That's right. He died of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and he had known since, I think, age 30 that he had Hodgkin's disease. Mm. Uh, That's when he left Microsoft. So he was actually only there for a few years, but he was pivotal, obviously, in the few years that he was there. He's actually the one who convinced Bill Gates to drop out of Harvard and co-found Microsoft. They saw that the personal computer revolution was coming, and they decided that it needed some more user-friendly software. Uh, and so they went out and moved to, I think they moved to Albuquerque and they, they built it. Uh, the first version was called Microsoft Basic. But I think what, what's really interesting to me about Alan is that he's obviously most famous for co-founding Microsoft. And, and in fact, Bill Gates said there wouldn't be personal computing without him. I don't know if that's quite true. That might be an exaggeration. But, but what's so interesting is that he lived so much of his life after leaving Microsoft. And so much of what he's being remembered for now is the stuff he did after he left in his, in his life as a, a billionaire. Yeah. Uh, and, and that includes, you know, owning a professional sports team or, or more than one. You can correct me on that. He was a, a real estate magnate. Uh, tell us a little bit about his, his legacy beyond tech. Yeah, it was funny. I, I was on Twitter last night as the news broke that Alan had died. And reading the different tributes 
to Allen, it was like eight different people had died. It was like R.I.P. Paul Allen, who uh, did amazing work with elephant conservation, or R.I.P. Mm. Paul Allen, who, who reshaped the city of Seattle and made it a cultural destination. R.I.P. Paul Allen, uh, whose whose company Vulcan Incorporated, that was this holding company as an investor, was was reshaping industries in in multiple different sectors. Um, he was also you know a conventional billionaire in the sense that he he built and owned uh, giant yachts. He even was working on a spaceship at the time he died. Uh, but it, really, I think what people are thinking about when they think about Allen is not just the guy who co-founded Microsoft and not just a, a, a billionaire who spent money the way rich people do, but a guy who used his money to change the world in all sorts of, of other ways. Paul Allen certainly leaves a tremendous legacy and one that I look forward to reading more about. But moving on, last week, Facebook, as usual, had a lot of news to report. On Friday, the company clarified the scope of the largest hack in its history and that it didn't affect the potentially 90 million people Facebook originally said could have been hit. It turns out 30 million people had their information exposed, 29 million of which had information stolen. And for that 29 million, the news is not great. Will, you wrote about this last week. The piece was called The Facebook Hack Could Haunt Its Victims for Years to Come. That sounds pretty bad. Yeah, it is bad. I was surprised that a couple outlets covered it as though the news on Friday was good. Oh, hey, it was only 30 million people. Well, we didn't know before. Only 30 million people. (laughs) Right, right, right. Only thirty million, and we didn't know before that in you know what information had been stolen. Now we do. So for one million, apparently no information was taken. For fifteen million, or about half, there was basic personal information stolen, such as their name and contact information. And then for fourteen million, they're the ones who really got hit. Um, and Facebook said that that data could have included the following: username, gender, locale and language, relationship status, religion, hometown, current city, birth date, device types used to act to access Facebook, education, work, the last ten places they checked into or were tagged in, website, people or pages they follow, and the fifteen most recent searches. Right. And, you know, uh, I just want to give our listeners a sense of how this information really could be used. I mean, just ask yourself, how many times have you confirmed your identity, like with a bank, with your birthday, right, or your phone number or your hometown for a security question? I mean, you can change your email and your phone number, but you can't change your birthday. And this identifying information is stuff that hackers now have access to. And this is the way we authenticate our identity across all the business, so many businesses that we interact with. And we don't know, to be clear, what has been done with this information. We know that it's been stolen. It may be on the black market somewhere already. Uh, It may be used in targeted follow-up hacks or phishing attempts. And that's kind of the scary part. I mean, we just, it's out there now and it's, it's, it doesn't go back in the bottle. You wrote a great piece a while back, April, about, I think the headline was, you can't clean up a data spill. I mean, once the data's out there, it's just, you just have to sit back and wait for the negative consequences and try to be on your toes in terms of defending yourself against identity theft. I think something important to remember is when we think about the harms of this type of data exposure is that we don't actually know the harms yet, right? I mean, this has only been happening for the past few years. There might be uh, stuff that's happening that's kind of things that we can't really see the whites of its eyes very well, or we don't, we're not exactly sure how, what form it takes. We don't know how this is, you know, translating into hyper-targeted advertising that may be manipulating us in unforeseen ways that we don't really have a good grasp on yet. We're not really sure how bad this is, and that makes kind of rectifying it uh, a a difficult thing. Uh, But to move on, you know, the day before Facebook clarified the scope of its hack on Thursday, Facebook uh, shared last week that the company had banned more than 800 accounts and pages for violating its policies on spam. 
and for flooding the platform with links to pages that appeared to be political information sites but were actually ad farms. But unlike previous sweeps uh, of pages in recent years, which, you know, were hundreds of accounts from like Russian and Iranian actors attempting to mess with the United States political conversation and so discord, the pages that were removed on Thursday originated domestically. So these were U.S. pages that uh, Facebook says were spam pages uh, and 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 sending people to websites that were just meant to to send ads. And this is risky t- territory for Facebook, right? Because these are political sites, and so you're going to get people who say, "Oh, look, they banned a site called Right Wing News." There, there, there's their bias. There's their liberal bias against conservative information. Or uh, look, they banned a, a left wing site, um, some kind of Occupy group or something like that. But I think, I mean, as far as we can tell they are really are focused on pages that aren't what they claim to be. Like they claim to be political news sites, but really they're just putting out clickbait or fake news in order to to get people to see ads, which I guess you could say is kind of the whole media business, but, uh, but they're not good faith sites in some sense. In some sense, this is what Facebook says. This is very, very shaky territory for Facebook to walk into and its decision to remove these often popular, I mean, some had over a million uh, likes and follows, partisan pages just weeks before the midterm elections, uh, could really fuel allegations that the company's biased in some way, right? And it's a charge that's that's really taken on a life of its own in the past year. I would say that you're right, that it's, it's a very thin line to know, you know, what is a, a website that's hosting legitimate content and ads and a website that's hosting illegitimate content and ads. I think that's very, very hard to discern. But I don't think Facebook makes these decisions lightly. They do make these decisions quickly, though. They alerted these pages that they were being shut down the same day that they got shut down. And so, you know, Facebook is taking action now. It's 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 good that they're doing this type of cleanup. But, you know, it's certainly kind of uh, rocking an ecosystem that uh, Facebook actually allowed to proliferate and to occur. Yeah, you, I mean, you won't hear any complaints from me. I mean, I don't think it was an easy decision to to get into the the business of deciding which sites are legitimate and banning the ones that it, that it deems illegitimate. That was a tough decision, but it's something that the media has been clamoring for for a long time because it was Facebook itself that allowed this ecosystem of spam sites to, to spring up and invade people's feeds. I think they're doing exactly the right thing here. I think it's good they're being transparent about it. I wish they personally they would have done it quite a while ago but that but again that doesn't mean that it won't bring a, a backlash or some negative consequences as well yeah cuz one thing that they didn't do is really delineate here is what these pages did in violation specifically uh and uh and of course you know maybe there's a reason why they didn't do that maybe they don't want to be clear on that for for strategic reasons but uh, there's always going to be some pushback unless we know exactly uh kind of how this was litigated All right, with that, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll have our interview with Senator Mark Warner. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. 
Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at applecard.com. The last several years have revised how Americans see the massive tech platforms that monopolize the time we spend online. There's the Russian-abetted role played by social media during the incredibly muddled 2016 election, whose aftermath has forced executives from Facebook, Twitter, and Google to repeatedly explain to Congress what they knew about Kremlin-linked content designed to widen divisions in American life and why they didn't do more to stop it. There's our deepening understanding of how these companies' targeted advertising systems can lead to discrimination by age, race, gender, and more. And there are the very real privacy concerns that they have forced us to confront as well, from the Cambridge Analytica scandal to the massive Facebook hack, the scope of which was disclosed just last week, together affecting over 100 million users. And we're now a year after the Equifax data breach, which affected some 145 million customers. Phone numbers, birth dates, private information about our curiosities, photos, and more have all been wrongfully exposed by tech platforms. And now, on both sides of the aisle, there appears to be a growing feeling that something must be done by Congress to regulate how these companies treat our information. With us today is Senator Mark Warner, a Democrat from Virginia. He serves as the vice chair on the Senate Intelligence Committee, which is conducting the congressional investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election. He is one of, if not the top lawmaker in Congress, spearheading a growing effort to rein in the power of American tech firms and address the harms they've caused. Largely unregulated now, companies like Google, Facebook, Apple, Microsoft, and Amazon have grown to become among the most valuable companies in the world. Senator Warner, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Earlier this year, you released a paper outlining various possibilities for how Congress might be able to step in and do more to ensure that these tech companies aren't making our elections awful and acting irresponsibly with our personal data. In your opinion, what's the most urgent issue in regards to U.S. tech companies and social media platforms that can be addressed by Congress? Well, I think we need to move past kind of the where we've been the last 10 years where people in business and in politics have been totally enamored around the social media companies and the tech companies. And there's, or no, I mean, Amazon, Google, Facebook, Twitter, they've all been wonderfully successful stories. But I think starting in 2016, we've seen the kind of dark underbelly of, of social media, how in the case of our elections, um, Russians were able to come in and intervene in massive ways with fake information, with disinformation. And that was on the political context. What we've also seen has been manipulation around stock prices, around advertising click-throughs. And my effort was to say, particularly with a lot of my peers, my background was in technology. I was in the wireless industry, co-founder of Nextel. So I come with a little bit of knowledge. Many of my colleagues have very little knowledge. So what I've tried to do in this paper is to say, here are 20 ideas, not all of them good, but I tried to break them into three buckets on how we might think about guardrails. One bucket is around user authentication and data authentication. Should we have some right to know if someone represents themselves on the internet, if they are that real person, or should we have a right to know whether we're being communicated to by a human versus a bot? Should we be able to know where a post might originate from? None of these are solve all issues, uh, but there is that whole question around authentication. Second bucket is around privacy and something I know, April, you've been working on for some time. And everything from first-party consent to the whole, I would argue, slightly clunky GDPR approach of are there privacy protections. And the third bucket are the questions around are there 
pro-competition tools where some of these enterprises have become so large and so powerful that actually could be market-based solutions that might uh, provide some relief. So, for example, being an old telecom guy, it used to be really hard to move from one company to another until there was number portability. Should we increase data portability? Uh, If you have increased data portability, we could take all of your data that you have on Facebook and move to a new platform. How do you also guarantee interoperability? One of the issues that I raised, for example, with Sheryl Sandberg was, you know, wouldn't it be great if users could know not only how much data Facebook or Google or Twitter has on us uh, by individual kind of uh, data points, but also how much that is worth on a monthly or quarterly basis to those companies. So bringing more transparency, both the data and pricing, might then provide, for example, areas for new competitors to come in that might end up intermediating between a user and a platform to provide different levels of security based upon a user's wants. So the three buckets of competition, privacy, and authentication, I think are at least how I'm thinking about this issue in terms of approach. You talked about those three buckets, and there are a lot of good ideas in the paper, uh, which we've read. Where do we start, though? Which which one do you think is most urgent, or which one can Congress actually achieve meaningful action on in the near-term future? A great question, and I think that's a I think that's an an open question. I I also what I, what I try to tell my friends in the tech community is we are one incident away from a massive overreaction. So let me give you my. Uh, semi-worst case prediction. Someone will do a major cyber hack, a la an Equifax or what we've seen recently with Facebook in terms of personal information, but it's instead of being 30 million users, say 300 million users, take that personalized information, communicate with individuals with that personal data that will make folks open up the message or the post, and then they'll see a deep fake video of images of a politician or a business leader or others, and then Congress will come in and and go too far. So I do hope the companies would, would work with us closer. Some of the low-hanging fruit uh, are, is in an area, and this will not solve all problems by any means, but you know, just this notion that both Twitter and Facebook said they were willing to move to, to let individuals know whether they're being communicated with by a human being or a bot. Now, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with being communicated with by a machine, but maybe at least having that data point would allow people to have, uh, you know, make judgments on how much they want to believe or not. I also think, and this gets more cumbersome when we talk about massive amounts of data moving into the cloud, but if somebody says their will and they say they're posting from the valley, but the post is actually originating in St. Petersburg, Russia, maybe there ought to be an, a geo indicator that would pop up. Again, you can you could validate or understand the post. You could still j- judge it, but you'd at least know that it may not be originating from where the so-called user uh, would indicate. We might, those are things that I think members can get their arms around that doesn't seem to be too intrusive. A much more intrusive area that also folks, I think, could understand, but this would have, this would have huge pushback and would be probably way too radical to start with, would be the whole question of being able to get rid of anonymity on the web and move towards identity validation. We have seen countries such as Estonia, which has had so much interference from Russia where the Estonian population basically made an agreement that that they would validate by both biometrics and enhanced passcodes identity validation. You might end up then with 
two webs, uh, one that's still kind of the wild, wild west, one where there was identity validation, because we are seeing um, a move towards, unfortunately, the balkanization of the Internet. And as more and more countries try to move towards you know, maintaining local control over their users' data, India, the most recent example, obviously China, more on the extreme. So what's doable, Will, in the short term, I think is is easier around human versus machine, maybe geocoding, maybe some of the areas around simply first-party consent, around um, issues, for example, on privacy. I'm very interested in the, the pro-competitive area. So if there's a way recognizing government is pretty slow on the regulatory front, if there's a way to do this on a more competitive model, uh, but that will probably take a little bit more work in terms of educating members. Sorry for the long answer, but it's a, it's a very important question. So, Senator, uh, you, you say that you fear an overreaction, but it seems that now uh, Congress really isn't doing much in terms of, you know, getting behind some of the policy options that you've outlined. There are bills that have been proposed, and, and it doesn't seem like any have a lot of support. I am curious, though, uh, how powerful are the tech lobbyists in influencing Congress here or causing Congress to drag their feet? You know, whether it's between lobbyists, public interest groups and constituents, I'm curious who's at the table with these conversations here. Well, the conversations in a meaningful way have only started literally in the last six to nine months. You know, for I think a year to a year and a half after the 2016 elections, Facebook and Twitter kind of drugged their feet thinking that we would we would simply go away. And and Google, frankly, just didn't even engage. And frankly, Google still, I think, to their detriment, are refusing to engage in a meaningful way. So I think it was only after, for example, the Cambridge Analytica hack became clear that um, at least Facebook started to realize that we weren't going away to policymakers and Americans were demanding an action. If you look at the decreased use uh, amongst millennials of Facebook, although they they simply were moving to you know, Instagram and other Facebook properties, so it's not like moving to a more competitive landscape. It's it's only been recently that they've fully engaged, and I think there's been amongst the Democrats, there was this kind of enamored feeling, particularly out of the Obama administration, um, towards the tech community writ large. And then I think amongst the Republicans, there was this natural inclination not to be for any kind of regulatory structure. And that's combined, combined with the fact that many of the folks I work with don't even understand how these technologies work or the basic business model, um, has made this a bit of an, both an education process and moving both parties Democrats to the point of saying, hey, you got to have some guardrails. That doesn't mean you're anti-tech. And moving to the uh, Republicans to say, hey, just because we're talking about privacy, because we're talking about how we can increase more competition, you've got to look at at guardrails as well. And what we've seen is because you know, in an area like this where America has always taken the lead, our failure to take the lead has allowed, the, for example, the Europeans to move forward with GDPR. And what I'm starting to see is in kind of cousin areas, another place where I've been very active is trying to make sure within the Internet of Things, next generation connected devices, that we build in basic security on the front end. That should have been a no-brainer. We still haven't got that passed. So now instead you're seeing – Japan starting to take the model of of my legislation, bipartisan legislation, and start to use that for their own IoT security rulemaking. I think America's failure to lead in a lot of these areas is going to come back and bite us. 
You mentioned that Congress has been very enamored with the tech industry up until just recently. So perhaps that's led to to such an action for so long. Uh, You say in your policy paper that there's no form of deterrence now against foreign manipulation in uh, social media, on U.S. social media. And I'm curious if you have a sense of what an appropriate response from the U.S. would look like here. Since the paper, we are seeing government, you know, um, I think up its game. Part of government and part of this is our structure is that if Russia, with its hackers out of the IRA or out of its former spy services, former spy services, the GRU, are creating fake accounts and trying to interfere or hack into our election security, you know, it is the responsibility of the CIA to follow that abroad or the NSA to kind of try to have the cyber abilities to intercept those communications. Once you that somebody presses send, though, and that information then appears on your device here in America, all that responsibility is transferred over to the FBI and Department of Homeland Security. So this real wall we have, which I think has worked for a long time between our domestic services and our foreign services, I'm not saying they need to be rethought, but it does make it, it, it does make it more challenging in this realm of misinformation, disinformation. Also, I would argue in the cyber realm, that we've not had a cyber doctrine since 9-11. We, you know, this goes back. This is not just a problem with Trump. It's Obama. It's Bush. And that's meant that near-peer adversaries like Russia and China have been able to either steal our intellectual property a la China or hack into the OPM a la China or interfere in our elections a la Russia with the IRA and the GRU. And we've not, we've been reluctant to use any of our tools to push back. So we've kind of been a a punching bag. Now that gets us into the whole realm of of offensive cyber capabilities, which probably was a longer conversation we would have mm-hmm. today. But we need an articulated cyber doctrine so that our, you know, frankly, not just us, but there needs to be kind of the West writ large ought to have some policies that say if you use certain cyber tools, um, and we can define which ones, you know, that we're going to have lower attribution. We're going to really be willing to punch back. But that's one conversation on the on the. The company's part, they have, again, also started up their game, and we've seen Facebook and Twitter take down accounts, not as much action on Google. We've seen Microsoft, for example, a couple months ago indicate both Iranian and other accounts they were taking down. They have upped their game some, but as we've seen by the most recent Facebook hack or the much more egregious uh, Google hack that they sat sat on for six months before they even reported, um, this is still not a top priority for the companies. What are your thoughts on these companies trying to get their products into China and foregoing human rights protections that they'd adhere to in the U.S. and also potentially exposing their artificial intelligence work, which the U.S. military is interested in using as well, to the Chinese government? Is there a role for Congress to play in constraining how these companies move into China? Absolutely. And one of the things, and I say this as somebody who's, my thinking has changed dramatically on China. Five years ago, I thought there was the ability to kind of peacefully rise together. I still would hope for that. But I think the the reality of the threat that China poses, the fact that the Alibabas and Badus and Tencents are, are in a sense almost agents of the state as we see Huawei and ZTE in the telecom area try to dominate the, the 5G standards. I think it is 
remarkable that some of these American companies, purely for financial gain, are willing to sacrifice their principles and give up their crown jewels to try to get access to the Chinese market. And so I'm leading a bipartisan effort again to really get some more of this information declassified, not only to warn the tech companies, but to warn others in terms of buyer beware. Not saying we don't do business with China, but I'm saying we need a greater sense of protections. And frankly, some of these companies, particularly companies that say they want to do no evil, you know, I don't know how they can square that when they would suddenly provide you know, search engines where the Chinese government has enormous ability to spy and, and surveil its own people. I would hate to see an American company be part of that. So we need, um, we need to do more disclosure to our American companies. We need to Press them a little bit on, really, are you willing to kind of sacrifice all your principles to get into this market? And um, again, I think we need to be willing to call out some of these Chinese tech companies who, frankly, are very much tools of the Chinese Communist Party, at least if not directly, indirectly. Senator Warner, let's say you have a constituent who comes to you and says, look, I use Google, I use Facebook. I'm really afraid about how they're harvesting all my data we had the Google Plus breach, uh, or the at least exposure of personal data. We had the giant Facebook hack and the Cambridge Analytica. Your constituent says, I use these services and I'm afraid, but I don't feel like I have a choice. Now, when they testified to you in Congress, these companies said, oh, of course people have choices. There's, there's plenty of other social networks or search engines. Do you buy that answer? And is that what you tell your your constituent? Or is there something <laughs> else you can tell your constituent? No, I don't, I don't buy that answer because, I mean, you know, it's... You can't opt out. Even if you're not on Facebook, you may have friends who are who will have information about you. I mean, these are these are companies with as much power, if if not more, than even the giant trusts that were uh, the railroad and chemical and shipping industries at the beginning of the 20th century. And I think we are going to have to have this, um, you know, in a sense reckoning with them and i'm you know and but i have been concerned that i don't want to undercut the american companies to have them replaced by chinese companies that may even have more information and even less restraints that's why i go for example on the on the information piece you know i'm really intrigued with this idea of more transparency if a user really knew how much information facebook has or google has about uh, that individual and if we actually had pricing transparency as well because a lot of Americans believe, oh, my gosh, this is all free stuff. This isn't free. Uh, this is, you know, people are harvesting information about each of us and they're monetizing it. If we had more transparency on that, that might inject more competition or might move us quicker on trying to put some guardrails. Again, I don't want to stop innovation. I don't want to slow it with undue regulation. But I, I frankly believe that this is – a personal security threat. I believe it's a national security threat. I, I honestly believe in a certain sense, um, looking at our $713 billion defense budget, we may be buying in this country the world's best 20th century military in terms of tanks and trucks and rockets, whereas you know, our near-peer adversaries like Russia and China are realizing cyber and misinformation and disinformation may be the tools of conflict in the 21st century, and I'm not sure we're fully prepared. What can Americans who are concerned about these issues do? You know, that's – I'd love to give you a a clearer answer. I'd say, you know, write or email your, your congressman or senators. Um, but for many of the members, you know, maybe the young aide who's reading the post will understand it. I'm not sure that some of our members will. I mean – 
one of the things I because one of the things we've done, for example, on the intelligence committee, was we spent an awful lot of time trying to educate folks about how. In this case, the Russians were using these tools, and I was really proud when we had Jack Dorsey and Sheryl Sandberg. You know, nobody went off and started, you know, speculating about bias and algorithms. Um, you know, they got to the House, and it was a very different matter. I think the questions were more serious. But boy, oh boy, we do need to continue to educate members. You know, hopefully in a more bi- in a bipartisan way, um, so that we can get to the point of some guardrail. So I, I think they'll continuing to have individuals contact their, their congresspeople and senators and say, if, particularly if they have concerns about the amount of information that these companies have about us. So, you know, we have this huge concern that the government has all this information on us as individuals. I can assure you that, uh, that if you're an active Facebook or active Google user, those companies have more information about your personal habits and what you do and where you shop and what you're interested in than the United States government has. Senator Warner, thank you so much for joining us. April and Will, thank you for having me. One final quick break and then don't close my tabs. Some of the best things we've seen on the web this week. All right, it's time again for Don't Close My Tabs. April, what tab could you not close this week? My tab this week is an article from The New Yorker entitled The Growth of Sinclair's Conservative Media Empire. It is by Sheila Kolhutkar, and it is about a topic that I think not enough tech journalists and media reporters are deeply concerned about, and that is local television and the consolidation of local television, which remains an incredibly popular outlet for Americans across the country, particularly considering I think it's still like something over 30 percent of Americans still don't have a reliable home broadband connection. Uh, Sinclair is the largest TV owner in the U.S. It has 192 stations and 89 markets. It reaches 39 percent of Americans, the most it's allowed to reach by law and with an overtly conservative agenda. I have been reporting on uh, Sinclair's bid to merge with Tribune, which would have uh, given the television empire over 200 stations. That deal failed. But with that deal, it paved the way for a lot more consolidation to come down the road. This story is really incredible in that it gets at really the mechanics of how Uh, consolidated media works and how a top-down kind of control permeates a conservative bent into local news across the country. And I think it's really important that people read and understand this and see this as just as important a kind of tech and media story as we would say, uh, you know, the Uber Waymo trials, which also had a great article in The New Yorker this week. Uh, It's just that way more people watch you know, local television news, then they are concerned necessarily with whether or not they're going to have autonomous driving next year. Both important conversations, but uh, but the Sinclair uh, kind of stranglehold on local media is uh, something that we have to really consider and something that we really should uh, continue to think about the media consolidation laws that have been deteriorating in this country uh, for decades as a result of uh, kind of, you know, repeated deregulation of the sector. Yeah, with so much changing due to the tech platforms, it's easy to forget about the old problems that are still with us, about media consolidation 
in the, the legacy media, the mainstream media. I'm glad you brought that story up. It also reminds me of a story I saw this week uh, in, in Pointer. There was a new study that said it was looking at local news outlets and, and in particular online local news outlets. And it found that really the only ones that are doing well are those that happen to be in affluent communities. And, and uh, local news online is just not working in more blue collar communities. And that's that's sort of a hidden crisis, I think, that's happening around the country. So, uh, Will, what what tab do you still have open this week? All right. One that really grabbed me was one from Business Week, and the headline was Salmon Farmers Are Scanning Fish Faces to Fight Killer Lice. This is sort of a one and a half tabs because the way I found that story was actually from a New York Magazine story that built on it uh, with a, a headline that read, A List of Every Animal That Humans Can Spy On With Facial Recognition. I was not aware we were spying on any animals with face recognition. It sounds super creepy, and maybe in some ways it is, but in most cases, it looks like this is an example of face recognition being used for good. Uh, with the, in the case of salmon, uh, there's a Norwegian company that has built a 3D scanner that can identify the pattern of uh, spots and, and gills and eyes on, on salmon. And uh, it does this in order to track them and figure out which ones might have diseases like sea lice that could spread throughout the population or even harm the, the broader environment. Um, so they try to build their ideas to build a medical record for each of these fish. And uh, then they could potentially weed out the ones that are potentially disease vectors um, and that could cause broader environmental problems. I know there are a lot of ways to count animals and to differentiate between animals and populations and conservation efforts that have been used for a long time. And I'm not sure uh, of the efficacy of those existing methods. But what I'm really concerned about is that the investment in this technology is going to that while we're seeing this technology deployed in the field in ways that actually perpetuate racism. I guess hearing that this technology is being deployed in this way and that research is going into it for this use is only troubling because I know it's being applied to humans in a way that I think uh, can really exacerbate inequities in society. And I would like to see more money and research gone into correcting that. Uh, but, you know, I'm not really well versed enough on uh, the efficacy of this in conservation efforts or the importance of this in conservation efforts. And I know technology can be used for a wide variety of things. But really interesting tab and, and important to note that uh, that technology is used for so many things, including uh, identifying animals. Yeah, I think you raised some really good points there. All right, that's our show. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can also email us at ifthen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hi. We've been responding to some of you, and we really appreciate the feedback. You can follow me and Will on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser, and Will is at Will or Remus. Thanks again to our guest, Senator Mark Warner. You can follow him on Twitter at Mark Warner. And thanks to everyone who's left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. We really appreciate your time. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Thanks to Cody Hamilton for engineering here in Berkeley, California. And thanks to Paul Janoka for engineering at Kendall Studio in Wilmington, Delaware. We'll catch you all next week.